they were trying to avoid a repeat of the 2016 hack and leak scenario and this looked sort of like that and they didn't want to be implicated in that and so i think that probably biased them toward taking action i'm quinta jurassic and this is the lawfare podcast april 7th 2022 Today, we're bringing you another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on the online information ecosystem. And we're taking a look back at one of the stranger stories about social media platforms and the role of the press in the last presidential election. In the weeks before the 2020 election, the New York Post published on October Surprise, a set of stories about the business and personal life of Hunter Biden, the son of Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden, based on emails contained on a mysterious laptop. A great deal was questionable about the Post's reporting, including to what extent the emails in question were real, and how the tabloid had obtained them in the first place. The mainstream press was far more circumspect in reporting out the story. And meanwhile, Twitter and Facebook sharply restricted circulation of the Post's stories on their platforms. Now it's a year and a half later, and the Washington Post just published a lengthy report verifying the authenticity of some of the emails on that laptop although a lot still remains unclear about the incident. In light of this news, how should we understand Facebook and Twitter's actions in 2020? Washington Post technology reporter Will Remus weighed in on this question in his own reflection for the paper. So Evelyn Duick and I asked him on the show to discuss. Did the social media platforms go too far in limiting access to the New York Post's reporting? How did the mainstream press handle the incident? What have we learned from the failures of how the press and social media handled information operations around the 2016 election? And what can we learn from how they behaved differently in 2020? It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 7th. How the press and the platforms handled the Hunter Biden laptop. Before we begin, I want to sort of set this up as having two parts to to what we're talking about. So, First, there is the uh, old controversy about what happened when the initial story came out in 2020 in the New York Post about Hunter Biden's laptop. And then there's a second part of the story about what's happened in the last few weeks that's kind of brought that initial story back into the headlines. To begin at the beginning, um, at risk of asking you to quickly summarize something that is kind of impossibly tangled, could you give us a quick reminder of just what the Hunter Biden laptop story actually is? Like, what what did the Post report? What happened? So in mid-October 2020, which, of course, was a month and a half or so before the 2020 presidential election, New York Post had this report that they were touting as a bombshell that showed some emails between Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, and officials from other countries, including Ukraine, about his business dealings. And at least one of them mentioned introducing one of them to his father. And the idea was to tie Joe Biden to Hunter's allegedly corrupt business dealings around the world. And so this was a big scoop for the Post, and it was based on emails from a laptop that allegedly belonged to Hunter Biden, which had been dropped off at a computer repair shop in Delaware, of all things, and then just left there, like never picked up again. The computer repair shop guy apparently passed it along to law enforcement. Somehow, some of this stuff ended up in the hands of New York Post reporters. And they were 
revealing it to the world. And, and it was, you know, meant to be incriminating, but it wasn't clear exactly how incriminating it was. There was also sort of stuff on there that was sort of just really embarrassing, like what they described as a raunchy 12 minute video that appears to show Hunter Biden smoking crack while engaged in a sex act with an unidentified woman who was not his wife, other sexually explicit images. That was the post report that they came out with on October 14, 2020. So first of all, I want to congratulate you on what I think was an impressively succinct and clear summary of an impossibly tangled and winding and kind of uh, maybe purposefully obscure story in a lot of ways. So (laughs) thank you for that. To continue with a bit of scene setting, I think it's worth saying a few words about why we're doing another episode about this incident, because we talked about it back in the aftermath of that, in terms of, obviously, we're a content moderation podcast largely, so in terms of the social media response and why the social media response to one particular news story is is worth digging into yet again. I think an important part of this is it's become an oft-reach for example in right-wing politics and media as evidence of sort of the left-wing, ostensible left-wing bias of social media platforms. Um, because of the actions that they took, which we'll get to in a, in a second. It's also important, I think, because it's a good reminder of the significant role that these companies can play in in, in public discourse. You know, this was a, a story run by one of the biggest media outlets in the country by circulation, and it was, you know, purportedly implicating the ethics of the son of one of the candidates in a looming presidential election, which was, you know, just about to, to happen. And the social media platforms, two of the major ones, impeded the circulation of that story with basically little explanation until sort of after the fact. And I think in that sense, it's a good case study of a lot of the questions that are raised by some of these these really tricky issues of politics and content moderation. So with that sort of run up, I'm hoping, Will, could you give us a little bit of an overview of what those platforms did and why it sort of caused a lot of consternation and got a lot of attention at the time? Yes. So the most noteworthy response was from Twitter. What Twitter did was to actually prevent the sharing of the link to the New York Post story, meaning you or I couldn't even link to the New York Post story on Twitter, and to lock the accounts of those who did, including the New York Post. The New York Post's account was locked. The accounts of a White House press secretary, uh, the Trump campaign, a political reporter, Jake Sherman, had his account locked for sharing a link to a New York Post story. So that in itself is really unusual because generally the social media platforms, as you all know very well, are taking action against stuff that is so bad it wouldn't have made it into a normal media platform. Rarely are they actually blocking the sharing of reports from established media outlets, which have their own processes for for vetting material. Granted, the New York Post, their processes are less rigorous than many. Uh, And, you know, they're a tabloid. They're literally a tabloid. And and so, you know, they're kind of on the margins of, of media ethics, but it was still a highly unusual step. They justified it not by saying that this story was false or misinformation necessarily, they said that they were doing it under a policy that prevented people on Twitter from distributing content obtained through hacking that contains people's private information. So that's a pretty specific policy. But the idea was, you know, if somebody hacked my 
iCloud and then wanted to share my you know, embarrassing photos with the world on Twitter, that would be illegal under Twitter's rules and they would they would lock that person's account. That's how they treated this story from the New York Post. And in fact, the Post's account was locked for some time because the Post refused to delete the tweet, which is what you have to do to get it unlocked under Twitter's processes. So even after Twitter reversed itself, I think after a day or two, uh, the Post still remained locked out of Twitter. And of course, they were milking that for all it was worth. I mean, that probably played to their advantage ultimately. But Meanwhile, Facebook took a different approach. Facebook limited the circulation of the post story. So it used its some of the, the levers in its algorithm that can reduce a story's reach um, in people's news feeds. And it did that under its misinformation policy, not because the story had been debunked. So this is the unusual part. The story had not been debunked at the time. They were waiting to hear from their fact-checking partners as to whether the story would be debunked. And in the meantime, they were suppressing its circulation. The idea being, you know, if you have a viral story that's really dubious, you don't want that to reach 100 million people on your platform before the fact checkers can even say, you know, that it's false. Ultimately, after a week, Facebook's fact checking partners had not been able to definitively debunk the story. Facebook restored the circulation uh, in the newsfeed. They didn't lock anybody's accounts. They didn't block sharing of the story. And in fact, it's, it's questionable how effective their reduction of the reach of the story even was. I think there were reports that said it still reached you know, millions of people on Facebook. So I know we want to talk more about the uh, somewhat unorthodox ways that platforms invoked their policies at the time. But to to pivot to the sort of the second question that I framed at the top, why are we talking about this now? You did some reporting on these events recently for the Washington Post and some of your colleagues, um, Craig Timberg, McVisor, and Tom Hamburger have gone through this material recently and published on it in the Post. Why are we talking about this again now? So ever since this story came out, as I mentioned, I mean, the, the Facebook's fact-checking partners were not able to quickly debunk it. In fact, nobody was able to quickly debunk it, uh, although certainly the, the provenance of the emails and the photos was questionable. There were a lot of suspicions, especially from the left, that this was actually a Russian influence operation, uh, you know, that that maybe it was not really Hunter Biden's laptop, that it was planted somehow, faked and it was just really complicated to get to the bottom of because nobody actually had the laptop except for, I believe, the FBI, which was analyzing it, but was not telling anybody you know, what it was finding. And so it, the story just kind of went you know, for, a, for over a year, a year and a half, really, unverified but undebunked. And then a couple weeks ago, the New York Times did a report about the investigation, about the FBI's investigation into Hunter Biden's business dealings. And in the course of the Times' report, they they kind of said, oh, by the way, we were able to verify at least you know, some of the emails were authentic. And so the right had a field day with that. They were like, oh, a year and a half later, you know, in paragraph 38 of their story, the Times finally admits that actually it was real. You know, it wasn't hacked. It wasn't a Russian influence op. They didn't, the Times didn't actually say that. I mean, they, they hadn't, they couldn't say that with certainty. So just last week, the Washington Post, which had been working on this for months, I think, had gotten cryptographic experts. They they had gotten a hold of a, a copy, like a copy of a copy of the drive that was that was on the laptop. So this is not the laptop itself, and so it was the same kind of path by which the the New York Post had gotten some of the materials. So 
you know, even if the laptop was real, we couldn't be sure that the that these copies of stuff that was purportedly on the laptop were real and were really Hunter Biden's. And so after a long investigation, the Post was able to verify a small fraction of the emails on the drive as being authentic. And so we now have sort of for the first time since that initial wave of reporting in October 2020, we now have reason to believe, we now have clarity, I guess, that some of those emails really were Hunter Biden's and we can be sure of it. We do not know, by the way, that all of them were really Hunter Biden's. We do not know that there that there wasn't some kind of tampering with this drive. A lot of the uh, information that you would need to verify the rest of the materials, in fact, the majority of the materials is missing, is not there. So we don't know that it wasn't hacked or tampered with. We just know that some of it wasn't. Yeah, I think that's really important to emphasize. Like, we're now able to authenticate some of these emails, but a lot is still unclear. As you kind of hinted at the beginning, we still have no idea how this laptop ended up with this particular computer repair shop and how it made its way to the Trump team, which I think is is still kind of fishy. So there's a, a serious chain of custody problem here. There's some really interesting reporting in the, the post report that your colleagues did about this sort of specific weirdnesses of how it seems like some of the drive um, may have been tampered with, written over, even though we do know that some emails are authentic. And there's also a report that's public that the U.S. intelligence community made public after the 2020 election that uh, identifies Rudy Giuliani, who was sort of shopping the laptop around, um, not by name, but it's clearly him, as a way that Russia was trying to sort of launder anti-Biden narratives in the run-up to 2020. So there's, you know, if perhaps before it was unclear whether any of this was true. Now it's clear that some of it is true, that there really, you know, there are questions about the ethics of some of Hunter Biden's business decisions. But there's also this, you know, very, very weird uh, question marks hanging over this material still. Yeah. And so so I and, and Cristiano Lima, who, who writes our Tech 202 policy, tech policy newsletter for The Post, did a piece last week in light of the new Washington Post reporting verifying some of the emails that just looked back at the, the content moderation decisions that the platforms had made in 2020. We, we tried to talk to Twitter and Facebook and neither of them wanted to comment on it, uh, maybe for understandable reasons. Um, you know, this has become sort of a, a landmark in their history, as as you all pointed out. I mean, this has become a touchstone for people on the right who think that big tech is deliberately tilting the playing field and and censoring information that's harmful to Democrats. Yeah, it's like uh, digging up um, old wounds, uh, pushing on the bruise, because it's not only um, that this was so highly politicized and has become such a punching bag for for the right, but it's also like such a mess. Um, The way that they handled it, I think, in many ways was pretty embarrassing um, in terms of the way that they justified their decisions. You know, you talked about the fact that Twitter at first invoked its hacked uh, materials policy, but you know the problem with that was was twofold. First of all, it wasn't clear that the the, the information was hacked, but also even if it was, um, the policy written at the time had an exception for press coverage in order for the press to be able to you know make their own editorial decisions on what to cover. Uh, and many people on the right, you know, noted for example that Twitter had not applied the policy in the case of New York Times stories that had just recently come out about President Trump's tax returns, uh, the the provenance of which was also 
unclear. Um, t- Twitter later sort of quote unquote clarified um, its decision as being based on actually its personal information policy um, as well as the hacked information policy because Hunter Biden's email address was visible in some of the photos. And then, it, you know, as, as we talked about, changed course again, lifting its ban entirely. Um, and Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey said, you know, the company's communication around its actions was, was not great, um, which I think was a bit of an understatement. I remember watching uh, Twitter that day, just like it was, it was, a, it was all a bit of a mess. Um, and then, as you said, Facebook took a different tack and downranked it because of it being eligible to be fact-checked. The, the problem with that decision was that Twitter, uh, Facebook had never made that kind of announcement before about downranking a story before it had been fact-checked rather than after it had been independently fact-checked. And it was sort of unclear what any of the words in its announcement meant. Like it was unclear what reducing its distribution meant, as you pointed out. There was reporting following the, in the next few days that showed it actually still got plenty of distribution. Um, it was unclear why they were making this announcement. It was unclear whether they did this every time they it was a story that was eligible for fact-checking. It was unclear. Um, you know, it said, if we have signals that a piece of content is false, we temporarily reduce its distribution. But, you know, signals um, is a wonderful word, which means basically nothing or it could mean, could mean anything. And, you know, if any of this was normal protocol, it was news to the International Fact-Checking Network, um, which is Facebook's main partner in its fact-checking program, which also said, you know, what What are you doing, Facebook? We've never heard about any of this before. So it was wild. Um, it all raised the specter that this was a very sort of ad hoc, on-the-fly decision. But I guess, you know, I'm left wondering whether any of that makes any difference. Like, do we really think that if there had been clearer rules in advance that all of this was normal protocol, would that have really made a difference? Would we not be having this conversation today because uh, the right or anyone would have gone, oh, okay, it's totally normal for these platforms or it's totally understandable why these platforms have made the decision that they did. I wonder if it's sort of unduly loyally and formalistic of me to think that uh, clear rules specified in advance, which platforms can clearly point to, um, will protect them from this politicization or allegations of bias. But I'm curious, Will, if you think that it would have been any different if they had sort of, you know, if the hacked material policy had been clearer or if, you know, Facebook had been clearer about why it was uh, was reducing distribution or, you know, the extent of that. Would we not be here today? I would like to hear your, your all's thoughts on that too. I mean, I, I suspect it would not have been substantially different. I mean, for people like you, Evelyn and, and Quinta, like, yes, there would have been a difference in how you analyzed it. You know, maybe, maybe you, you would have given a little more credence to their decisions if they had been more clearly articulated and consistent with previously established policies. I don't know that the entire political right would have particularly cared. I mean, I don't, I don't think that the objections, the loud objections from the right were about the inconsistency of the application of Twitter's hacked materials policy. I think they were about the fact that Twitter was blocking people from sharing this and and whether they had a a great legalistic formal justification for that or not, uh, people were going to be pissed, right? That they were doing, that they were taking that action. You know, it's interesting, Evelyn, I was reading one of your recent academic papers, which is about this, this issue, right? Of whether, uh, whether platforms, content moderation policies really are 
best viewed as being a set of legalistic rules that they that you know where they just call balls and strikes over and over again or whether they're something more complex and dynamic than that which which you you i think i agree with you making the case that that it's the latter and we can clearly see that here right i mean yeah so trump's tax returns may have been obtained or passed on to the new york times illegally and yet you know, Twitter didn't block the New York Times' account. And uh, so, you know, it, it's really, it, these calls are being made by the platforms on the fly based on hunches and best guesses. And, uh, you know, and and in this case, as you as you all pointed out on this, at the time on your podcast, they were trying to avoid a repeat of 2016, the 2016 hack and leak scenario. And this looked sort of like that, and they didn't want to be implicated in that. And so I think that probably biased them toward taking action, including actions that weren't necessarily fully explicable uh, according to their pre-established policies. There's one one point to make. I, I do want to hear Evelyn's thoughts here, but I, I believe that the, the Times has actually explicitly said that it obtained the the Trump tax returns legally, or it obtained it from people who obtained them legally, which I think is a an interesting wrinkle here. I mean, and if we want to talk about sort of strict procedural ways to draw distinctions, that's one that we might draw here as well. Good point. Thanks for pointing that out, Quentin. Yeah, uh, you've done an impressive amount of homework uh, to appear on this podcast. Thank, thanks, Will. I, I mean, this is a kind of I find myself in an awkward position here in terms of thinking this through because on the one hand, I completely agree with you that I doubt it would have made any difference to the way that this has become such an icon of left-wing bias on platforms to, to the right. But on the other hand, you know, I talk a lot about, I think, the importance of having clear rules specified in advance that sort of platforms can point to to show that they're not just doing arbitrary decision-making. And so there's, I guess, a bit of a tension there. I think that the, the, the way that I come down on this is I don't know if there's anything that platforms could do to satisfy the right in you know certain aspects of the right in this case or in in many of these cases who have a real grievance politics around the way that these platforms do content moderation who for a variety of reasons often you know find themselves being disproportionately impacted we could you know it's it's difficult when you know people are affected by rules more when they breach the rules more but i can see or you know that's ostensibly what where a lot of these claims of bias come from so in terms of pandering to to bad faith interpretations of what platforms are doing uh, I, I think that that it's that it's difficult to see any way out of that and you know speaking to to maybe people like me but also sort of the broader longer term interest of saying we have these clear policies i still want to believe in that i still want to believe in the idea that this could have been handled so much better and maybe it would have made a bit of a difference on the margins like the complete flailing and the complete exceptional nature of it you know at, at a moment i think you know the atmosphere of that time was so tense um and everything was so politicized i really think that it 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 made such a mess of it that i do understand why this has become uh, you know, I was dissatisfied. <laughs> I was really dissatisfied when Facebook came out with its its announcement and, you know, immediately asked um, on, on Twitter, what does downranked mean? What policy are you pointing to? Uh, Twitter's complete flailing that, you know, made it look uh, much more arbitrary. And I think that if we don't sort of hold on to that, 
we sort of lose the whole enterprise of finding accountability for these decisions that they're making. Um, you know, we might as well just give up and say, well, sure, make ad hoc decisions uh, case by case, which really, I think, uh, undermines the project of finding ways to make the systems that they have accountable. And, you know, it's not necessarily about individual cases. It's about finding a way, as you said, Will, I've, I've written and thought about this a lot. I don't want to focus on individual cases because I think that's somewhat a fool's errand. But I do think that was part of the problem here was the problems that it highlighted with the systems that these companies have in place. You know, we didn't know anything about Facebook's system for fact-checking and how it implements that policy at a systemic level. And this was sort of a, a canary in a coal mine for suggesting that there were real problems with that, that Facebook was still holding the reins over what it was uh, uh, suggesting publicly was an independent fact-checking program that it was using to hold up to say, we're not arbiters of truth. We don't step in in this system. We let third parties make the decisions. And it kind of uh, gives lie to that if in exceptional cases, in particularly high stakes decisions, they actually do step in in arbitrary ways and sort of modify how that normal system works in practice. I like that you got the name of the podcast into the podcast. I think every podcast should have to do that every episode. <laughs> we do our best. <laughs> Will, your, your point about conservative or right-wing grievance against the platforms as perhaps something that would have come out no matter what rationale they pointed to, I think is important. And it also gets to the role of mainstream news organizations as part of this puzzle. So shortly after the Post published these stories about Hunter Biden's laptop, Ben Smith, who was at that point the New York Times media columnist, ran a story uh, showing sort of how many organizations had had access to that story, um, even though only right-wing outlets like the, the New York Post chose to run with it. So according to Smith, the Trump team had originally come with the story as, as sort of opposition research to the Wall Street Journal on the grounds that the journal is a reputable paper read by both the mainstream right and the mainstream left. But the journal ended up taking longer to publish than the Trump team would have liked because you know, journalism reporting takes a long time. And in the end, Rudy Giuliani, who was advising the Trump campaign, sort of jumped the gun, gave the story to the Post, which, as you've said, is less journalistically uh, rigorous, I think it's fair to say. And so the end result was that the right-wing press published the story, but it never really made the leap into the rest of the media. And that kind of diminished its power as a touchstone for the Trump campaign. And I think in a way that reflects a very common grievance that we've seen on the right of, you know, the the mainstream media, the fake news is not telling the true story here, that it's hiding the truth, that it's, you know, the New York Times is a tool of the left, you know, however, however you want to phrase it. Um, and Smith called this incident the return of the media gatekeepers, sort of mainstream reporting, keeping questionable stories out of circulation by doing the sort of more rigorous traditional work of journalism. So I'm curious what you think about that. And I mean, one way to one way to frame this is that, you know, it's maybe not so much about that this isn't a story about social media, but a story about the dynamics between respectable publications and the right wing press, or maybe just the right wing press and the rest of the media ecosystem. What do you think about that? That's a great way of framing it. And I, I think it's both. Let's imagine a time before social media. The Wall Street Journal passes on this story, potentially Fox News even passed on the story. The New York Post runs it. It's, you know, the story itself, like, okay, the existence of a, of a laptop with like sex tapes on it is pretty salacious. Like, it, and, and then, you know, the fact that maybe Joe Biden met with some Ukrainian associate of Hunter Biden, that's a story, but it's not an earth-shaking story. 
and I don't, I don't know that it would have really gone anywhere beyond, you know, the New York post has several million readers, mostly in, you know, you know, pre, pre internet, of course, they're mostly concentrated in New York. Now they're all over, you know, other, other outlets would have probably picked it up if we're talking internet, but pre social media, but it really would have, I, I don't think it would have gone very far. And so I think the gatekeeper theory would have been correct. The fact is that social media does exist and that the story got circulation on social media before the the platforms took action that probably you know already before twitter and facebook had done anything in terms of content moderation they had probably already caused that story to reach exponentially more people than it would have if facebook and twitter didn't exist and among those people are other parts of the traditional media ecosystem, including cable news, Fox News hosts. And so, you know, Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity would have been talking about this story to millions because they had, you know, their staffers had seen it on Twitter, had seen it on Facebook, would have been talking about it to millions. It would have, it would have, I think, pervaded at least the conservative media sphere you know, it, 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 I mean, it, it did, but it could pervade the conservative media sphere. But I mean, it, it, it went farther because of social media, even within the traditional media than it would have without social media. I think that's just, a, that's a hypothesis. You know, the, the fact is that social media, like traditional media outlets, like the Washington Post and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, they have the luxury of, of saying, let's wait on the story. We don't know. We can't verify it. We can't debunk it. So let's just not run it right now. But social media doesn't have that luxury. They've set up, I mean, they've set up for themselves a, a world where they where stuff is going to get widely distributed on there and either they're going to let it happen or they're going to not let it happen. And either one is a choice, right? They don't have the choice to just ignore it. And so that's a problem that they've created for themselves. And I think that's really at the root of the problems with the actions they took is that they were forced to make a choice in the moment because their systems are designed to make viral stories go wild and reach a huge audience in, you know, in real time. And so they have to act in real time, even if there's not enough information for them to know what action to take. And so they're forced to take decisive action on the basis of indecisive information. And I think that's sort of the root of the problem. Yeah, that definitely seems right to me. You know, it's it's hard to define what Twitter and Facebook did with respect to this story as anything other than like an editorial decision, like we might see at a media outlet. They sort of judged the, you know, content of the story and, and made an editorial decision that seemed quite specific to this particular story, um, not just sort of a, a broad brush decision that they make in all similar cases like this um, and and made an editorial decision about how it should be treated on their platforms. And I guess in thinking about lessons learned or, you know, possible takeaways from this, and, you know, maybe we can think about that more broadly and come back to it, but I think that one of them might be thinking about the different roles that different media, quote unquote media, defined broadly to include both the mainstream media and the social media platforms might have in thinking about the information ecosystem based on their different 
capacities. Like there's no particular reason why these platforms should have good resources or expertise to judge these kinds of stories. I think this comes up in a lot of different contexts. One other context that this has come up recently is in the the context of personal information. Like when a mainstream media outlet or, you know, less mainstream and and, and borderline uh, fringe media outlet publishes personal information of a particular person, what should platforms do as that information goes viral or gets a lot more attention uh, on their services. And it's difficult to just say, well, you know, they should rely on the gatekeepers of old to make these decisions because obviously they are amplifying the harm um, from promoting disinformation or personal information on their services. At the same time, for all of the reasons that we've talked about today, it's difficult and uncomfortable to say that they should be making these kinds of editorial decisions when it's not really their expertise. I guess one answer that many journalists point to would be for them to hire more journalists so that they upskill in this area. Another answer might be that we ask different aspects of the media to focus on different kinds of risk vectors. So Alex Stamos, I think, had a tweet thread recently about this, uh, saying that, you know, maybe gatekeepers or old can focus on these kinds of these kinds of problems, which they are, you know, well equipped and, and have for a long time been thinking about these kinds of editorial decisions. Whereas platforms are in a much better position to evaluate um, similar kinds of risks that we saw in 2016 around coordinated inauthentic behavior, my favorite term, um, whatever that means, uh, things like fake accounts, things like, you know, setting up uh, situations where they polarize communities and things like that and amplify um, either disinformation through manipulated means or whatever it is. Those are the kinds of things that platforms do have good quote unquote signals. Those are the kinds of signals that they are well equipped uh, to monitor and they're not so good at monitoring the, the quote-unquote signals of these kinds of things. I don't know if that sort of, whether you think one way or the other, I mean, as an aspect, as a, you know, participant or, you know, member of the media, the old guard of the media, whether you have a judgment of the expertise that social media platforms have in this area and whether you feel comfortable also, you know, making these decisions alongside you. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I defer to to Alex on that. I talked to him for the the story we wrote. Uh, I think that he's you know he's been in that position uh, at Facebook where he had access to internal information about influence campaigns, propaganda campaigns. Uh, you know, if he says that they have really good visibility into that kind of thing, I, I believe him. And certainly, I you know I, I think they should. I, I would like to see them share that. You know, share that information. Instead, what we saw in this case was, I've gotten hints from sources that these platforms have back-channel communications with law enforcement, maybe with the FBI, and that they may have, I, I, I can't say this as fact, I mean, I, I, I think it is fair to speculate that they may have been in touch with some law enforcement contacts around the Hunter Biden story and gotten, you know, you mentioned the word signals earlier, Evelyn, right, is this great, like, weasel word. I mean, maybe some of those signals were somebody at the FBI saying, where we can't verify this, like we would be real, you should be really careful about this, but we have no, in, we have no visibility into that. So I, I, I'm not sure, I guess I don't know. I don't know how helpful they were or could be in that kind of situation. But one thing that did, that I, I did want to talk about and maybe get Quinta's thoughts on is this idea that by reacting so strongly to the Hunter Biden story, they actually took a story that would have been like, you know, maybe more than a blip, but not a not a dominant narrative, and turned it into something bigger. You know, the Streisand effect, where by trying to you know trying to block access to information, 
you make people want that information more. You actually, this was Mike Masnick actually at Tech Dirt coined the term, the Streisand effect, when Barbara Streisand tried to cover up photos of her Malibu beach estate, I guess she tried to like get, suppress those from circulating. And then of course, you know, everybody, now everybody knows about her beach estate. You know, was there a Streisand effect here and did it make it into a bigger story? And also like a, a story of big tech censorship that just wouldn't have existed if they had not reacted so strongly. Yeah, that's a good point. I think sort of yes and no, right? Um, I mean, on the one hand, I think you're you're definitely right that the way that the story has kind of persisted in the right wing imagination as an example of big tech censorship and of, you know, the Wall Street Journal and Twitter collaborating to keep the truth down become sort of more powerful precisely because of that dynamic. On the other hand, I mean, I was thinking about this while preparing for this episode. The story is really complicated. Like, even if, if you just look at the facts of what the Post, the New York Post is reporting, it is really, I mean, you have to follow up on a lot of different threads to figure out why what they're saying is supposed to trace back to Joe Biden. Um, and some of those threads have to do with things that happened in 2019 regarding the sort of the narrative that Trump was trying to spin that got him impeached the first time around when he was uh, pressuring Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, who, of course, we now know in a very different capacity, uh, to essentially make up false information about Joe Biden's involvement with Hunter Biden's work in Ukraine. And so the story is just like, it's really hard to follow. Um, and I think you, you know, I'm familiar with this in another context from the Mueller investigation, where I feel like I spent a long amount of time trying to get people to care about sort of details that were difficult to understand the context of because the story had become so complicated. And that was something that was true and important. And in this case, you just kind of have to be, you know, very deep in the right wing ecosystem to know you know, what Sean Hannity is talking about when he says the word barisma and why it matters and why it's supposed to be bad. Um, you know, maybe that doesn't matter. I think the people who are watching Hannity's show probably will take his word for why something is bad, even if they don't, they can't fully verbalize it. But it does, it does seem to me like it's just, you know, insofar as the Trump campaign was trying to reproduce the dynamics of 2016, where they could sort of wave Clinton's emails around as a a kind of a signifier of bad, that this just wasn't as effective, that it was it was too confusing, it was too complicated, it was hard to track down. And I do wonder to what extent that really limited the effectiveness of the story and would have limited it even if the platforms hadn't gotten involved. I want to go back to the issue of collaboration with law enforcement that you raised, Will, because I'm so glad that you, that you raised this. It's one of my pet bugbears in this area, um, which is the opacity of these collaborations. And I rant and rave about it all the time, but it seems to me to get so little attention, in, in part, I think, because it's assumed that maybe that's a really good thing um, for reasons to do with the, you know, the, the, the stuff ups around 2016 and the lack of information sharing. And you might think, or many people might think that it would be good in this situation if the FBI was feeding information to platforms that justified a rapid response or that enabled a rapid response in situations where they may have had absolutely no idea what to do or may not have been on alert. So it's a kind of uncomfortable drum for me to keep beating here because it sounds like I'm like, you know, don't don't collaborate um, or raising concerns about collaborations that are that are really beneficial. But I think that there are a lot of issues here that are really unexamined and, and difficult ones. So, you know, in the lead up to the election in 
in, in 2020, we'd relatively frequently get these announcements from platforms, not just to do with, with this story, but in general, um, saying that they were collaborating with both each other and, and with governments to counter election disinformation. And, you know, when they were asked about what was involved at congressional hearings, platform ex- executives would say vague things like, oh, you know, we share signals. Again, signals, that, that wonderful word that's um, that's coming up a lot today, you know, and they don't really talk about any of the specifics that are involved in those conversations. And, you know, one of the reasons why they say they don't talk about specifics is it's classified information, right? Which seems right, but it's also totally unsatisfactory to think that these major vectors of information, of informing public discourse in the lead up to an election, are collaborating with government and intelligence services about the information uh, informing the election. And so it raises uh, difficult equities on either side in, in terms of thinking about about this. To my mind, the downsides are sort of too s- significant and unsustainable that these relationships could should remain completely in the dark without some kind of transparency and oversight. But, you know, I'm curious if you've sort of uncovered any more about this in, in your reporting or if you have thoughts about why this goes so unexamined um, in the broader discourse, because to me, it's, it's, it, it seems to me to be sort of a glaring uh, hole as we think about going forward about, you know, what should the proper relationships be? What should the proper infrastructure be for this? Because this is an ongoing issue. This is not going to be a one-time story problem. This is going to be an issue every single election. And so how should we think about these relationships? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point. I think it's a, it's a drum worth beating. I, I suspect one reason it doesn't get more attention, for, at least from the mainstream media, is that there's there's not much to go on. I mean, we don't, you know, they they do keep this stuff pretty hush hush. They don't, and you know, in the absence of facts, you know, we would we would just be speculating about the nature of these relationships and these communications between the platforms and law enforcement entities. You know, it might be nice to see some of the people who have worked inside these companies be a little more transparent about it. I mean, they're, you know, the the ex, you know, trust and safety folks who are now in various think tanks, you know, are probably in a position to shed more light on the nature of these relationships. Um, and I would love to see them do that. I think, you know, it also goes to this broader issue of of when should social media platforms listen to governments and which governments and under which circumstances. You can certainly think of situations where it might be helpful to for Facebook to hear from the FBI when it's trying to make a difficult call. You would also want them, I think, to treat what the FBI says with a little skepticism, a little grain of salt. I mean, this is something that the media has to has to deal with, right? Like we reporters in at mainstream media outlets talk to law enforcement officials. Sometimes we let them go off record to to tell us stuff that they can't tell us publicly to help us make editorial decisions. But they, but what they say isn't the be all and end all, right? We understand they are actors with their own vested interests, and uh, you know we have to we have to weigh the credibility of what they're saying as well. So uh, and then you know when you when you get into governments outside the United States. To what extent should platforms uh, in Ukraine be taking their cues from Ukrainian leaders as to how to treat certain stories? I mean, clearly, U- Ukrainian leaders are in a position to know some things that the platforms don't. They also obviously have their own, you know, important and valid agenda that they're that they're pushing. And so, I think that it's it's very murky in general what relationship platforms should have with governments. Yeah, I mean. 
if I'm remembering correctly, one of the many recriminations that social media platforms were tossing at the U.S. government after the 2016 election was that there hadn't been adequate communication from the intelligence community about the threat of Russian election interference. And so the platforms were sort of flying blind. And I I do think that transitions to another point I wanted to talk about, which is something we've kind of been circling around, which is to what extent both the platforms actions in the Hunter Biden case and the way that the mainstream press chose to report on the laptop or not report is kind of a reaction to 2016. So you see in the in the platforms case that you know there's a arguably the the tech lash the backlash against tech platforms post 2016 is caused by the way the platforms were really exploited by Russian uh, state-linked actors conducting information operations and and didn't do enough. And so there's an extent to which I think it, it might be fair to say they were a little trigger happy this time because they really wanted to avoid a repeat of 2016 and 2020 and sort of shown that they'd learned their lesson. And then on the part of the press, I mean, of course, we, we've talked about the, the hack and leak operation of the uh, Clinton campaign's emails and the Democratic Party emails, which worked because mainstream press organizations like the New York Times really, I would argue, kind of fell for it hook, line, and sinker and just printed story after story after story about these leaked emails. And so I did wonder at the time when we sort of saw the mainstream press really hold back from the Hunter Biden story, whether there was some caution that had been inculcated there too from you know not wanting to potentially be used in the same way this time around not necessarily by Russia but by the the Trump campaign as well i mean is is that a fair presentation i guess is my question and and also you know is there an extent to which either platforms or the press went too far i mean the that we've seen some of these emails are authentic right was the sort of was the blackout too much yeah, I, sh- I should caveat this first by saying that I wasn't at the Washington Post in either 2016 or 2020, and certainly can't speak for the Post's actions in either cycle. You know, I was I was at a an opinion magazine, and so I was basically an outsider to the process by which the mainstream media decided how to report the hack and leak in 2016 and the Hunter Biden laptop story in 2020. With that said, my impression is the same as yours. I mean, I think they were absolutely fighting, you know, fighting the last battle, you know, wanting to avoid a repeat of the same mistake. I was actually looking back at Lawfare's coverage in in 2020. You know, there was uh, Janine Zachariah, who I respect, had an op-ed about the need to to avoid a repeat of 2016 and what what it would take to avoid a repeat of 2016. And, you know, in hindsight, we can now knowing that some, at least some of the emails were authentic, we can look back and say, oh yeah, they, you know, they overreacted. At the time, it was it was really, it was not clear, right? And uh, I guess we all we're all we're always you know fighting the last battle in some ways. I, I think that I do think that the the mainstream media's cautious handling of the Biden laptop story was justified. I mean, it's certainly in hindsight. I mean, it seems it seems like they did a better job with that than they did in 2016. But I I don't know. I mean, if you all have thoughts, I, I would be open. I would be interested in those as well. I mean, I do think there is an aspect of overlearning the last lesson. At the same time, I'm struck as we revisit this now, a couple of years later, how little it seems to be that we seem to have learned from this story. You know, there seemed to be this outcry, you know, Dorsey 
uh, tweeted this very apologetic thread about how inadequate their response had been, but their hacked material policy, by the way, still remains pretty ambiguous and it's not always clear what it would apply to going forward. All of the terms that we have talked about that Facebook ostensibly relied on signals downranking the level of effect that any of those decisions actually made um, substantively given that uh, you know, it's still got so much more, so much circulation on its platform. All of the questions around relationships with law enforcement, it strikes me that we are no better off uh, to answer any of those questions, have no greater transparency into them now than we did a couple of years ago. Despite many congressional hearings, one was specifically called in response to this incident by Republicans. Um, but of course, unsurprisingly, Congress Congress people spent most of their time yelling at platforms rather than trying to get actual answers or demanding any kind of data or actual empirical evidence of, of what happened, which is so frustrating um, to, to someone like me that's, that's really hungry for this information. So I guess um, long sort of ramble to say, I just, I just find this whole uh, thing super frustrating. And I think it gets to the dynamic that you were sort of alluding to earlier in terms of the relationship between law enforcement and platforms, Will, which is like, nobody's incentive is really to give a lot of transparency here because the less transparency you give, the less we have to talk about. And so these kinds of things just sort of fade in our memory and, you know, sort of dribble away. And we don't have, um, you know, ongoing examination of a moment that I think was pretty embarrassing for platforms in, in their handling of it. So that's my main takeaway, which is we don't have any really substantive takeaways and I'm pretty frustrated. Yeah, I mean, I think that ironically, platforms, I think, did a lot more self-reflection, again, from from my perspective as, as someone who is sitting outside the mainstream, you know, reporting organizations. Platforms did a lot more self-reflecting after 2016, I think, than, you know, say, the New York Times did, as as I can tell. You know, the, not, not saying that they necessarily got it right all of the time, but, you know, you really do see a shift and a kind of like, oh, God, maybe we really do need to think about this more, more carefully, even if it often leads to overreaction. It's clumsy in all different kinds of ways. It's often not enough. What you see on the part of the mainstream press, I think, regarding 2016 is often a real defensiveness. Um, and I'll, I'll give a shout out again to Alex Damas, who has been banging this drum for a very long time. In part because of that, I do think it's interesting. I agree with you, Will, that I think that the the press handled this a lot better than the platforms um, in just sort of taking the time to actually report it through, think carefully about what to do with material that might have been hacked or tampered with, um, that it kind of you know behaved in the way that we would want the the media to behave. And I think there's you know, there's been a lot of recriminations on the right about the Washington Post's reporting that we're discussing now, the recent reporting of, you know, oh, well, now they say that the laptop is worth talking about. The reason is because, you know, the Post was able to get the data, which uh, Steve Bannon had refused to give them um, and Giuliani had refused to give them in 2020. And they were able to look it through carefully and authenticate it. And that kind of work takes time and that responsibility takes time. And I think that's kind of the way you would want to see it handled. On the other hand, we also have, I think we, it seems like the three of us all agree, <laughs> platforms kind of overreacting and overshooting the mark. So I don't know whether, you know, maybe we see that dynamic because platforms are forging, you know, stepping ahead into new ground in a way that the press isn't, you know, the press in, in a way is sort of doing what it's always done. But I, I do find that interesting and maybe a little bit hopeful when it comes to the question of what 
mainstream reporters learned from 2016. I, I would agree. And, and I would venture to say that Facebook's response, leaving aside Twitter's response, which I think we we mostly agree was too strong. You could make a case that Facebook handled this pretty well too, the Hunter Biden story. I mean, reducing the circulation of the link because it's dubious, because it's important, because you know that this is the kind of salacious but questionable story that your algorithms tend to promote, because you understand that that the role of the Facebook newsfeed is to make things like this go viral, pulling one of those levers back and saying, well, let's let's be careful about how viral we make this go until we can get some fact checkers to look into it. That that's not the worst response. I think that's a reasonable response. And and maybe, you know, I, I think Evelyn pointed out that it wasn't it wasn't clear that it was, you know, that there was any kind of precedent for this and Facebook didn't explain it well. It wasn't transparent. Um, so certainly you could criticize it on those grounds. But maybe, you know, to the extent there's any kind of lesson or solution here um, to this impossible problem of social media platforms like automatically making salacious but questionable material reach everybody and their brother before anybody can do anything about it. To the extent there is a solution, maybe it looks like what Facebook did and and formalizing that and building out a sort of toolkit for making sure that you're not overly amplifying a really important but possibly false or possibly dangerous story before you can find out whether it's true. So I would agree with that in principle, uh, the idea that, you know, these platforms are built to amplify things, to make them go viral, to work at speed. And as Quinta was saying, you know, something that this shows is that all of this takes time. And so, you know, slowing things down, introducing friction does seem like a really great uh, kind of intermediate response where platforms, you know, if they don't want to make that editorial decision themselves, or maybe we think they shouldn't be making that editorial decision themselves, they are at least addressing the harm that they do or their contribution in these situations, which is amplifying it and sending it viral and giving it a lot more visibility and engagement. The problem is as to whether in this particular case it was good, we, I think we just don't know. Like, we still don't know. It, if you take Facebook's statements at face value, that it, it did this, that it wasn't an exceptional intervention based on political uh, considerations, and that it actually had some material effect in downranking, then yeah, I might I might agree with you that that, that is a good um, proportional response. That The problem is that all of those are kind of assertions and that Facebook is getting exactly the kind of PR dividend that it wanted by making this exceptional announcement. Like the first that I heard of the um, New York Post story was through Andy Stone's tweet telling us that Facebook was taking action about it um, and getting, I think, what it hoped. It didn't necessarily pan out this way, but hoped was like a pat on the back from everyone to say, hey, you're doing really well this time. You've learned your lessons from 2016 and you're being really responsible. And the idea, the fact that fact checkers didn't even know that this was how Facebook's fact checking system worked, I think shows that 
you know, that exceptional handling is potentially problematic. And as to its actual effects, I just don't know that that's the case. So I'm really all in on this kind of intermediate measure of not just deciding take up, leap down and platforms uh, addressing their contribution to these problems. But I don't want to get away, let Facebook get away with the fact that, you know, all that we really know is a few tweets about this. And and so so I, I guess my big lesson to learn from that is like, yeah, we, we, we need the data, free the data, and, and that's sort of nothing new. Um, but I'm curious if either of you two have any more useful or original big takeaways from uh, this incident. Look before you leap, right? I mean, I think it's it's hard to come up with a big takeaway other than, gosh, this is really hard, which is is sort of both the, the most obvious takeaway and I think the one that I've I've ended up on after you know, thinking this through over the course of a year, coming back to it again, you know, looking at the information on on the table, like it doesn't seem like there's an obvious here's what we, here's what they should have done. I, it seems like we're getting closer to a sort of playbook, better outcome. I don't think we're there yet, but I definitely don't come away from this saying like, you know, this is the thing that was missing that could have fixed this messy situation. I don't know, Will. What do you think? Yeah, my my general bias is to look at look to the design of platforms and their algorithms as the root of these sorts of issues and and you know potentially the locus of a solution that's not to say i know what the solution is and i agree evelyn that that you know the lack of consistency in using the type of intervention that Facebook used on the Hunter Biden laptop story is problematic. I, I I wonder if you could make a case that they could or should have done the same thing with BuzzFeed's report of the Steele dossier. You know that was that was analogous in some respects. You know not not in others maybe, but it was a media outlet reporting something that other media outlets had passed on because. It wasn't clear whether it was true, and would you know would it have been reasonable for Facebook to also limit the circulation of that BuzzFeed link while fact checkers look into it? I, I think that you know again, I think that wouldn't have been the worst way to handle it. I mean, if you could if you could develop a framework that made sense, and the the danger there, I mean, I, I would love to see platforms think about ways that their algorithms can incorporate values like truth or the or the credibility of information or potential harm of information you know they're they're so focused on the behavior of their own users and what gets shared and that just biases them toward certain types of of sensational material i, I would love to see them incorporate <laughs> signals oh my god now i'm calling for them to incorporate opaque signals but like you know incorporate other other things into the calculus of what goes goes wild you know maybe at a more basic engineering level and of course the pitfall there is like how do you how do you do that like how could facebook build a system that would limit the virality of questionable and harmful stuff without also limiting the virality of the stuff that makes social media so useful as as a counterweight to traditional media. I mean, social media has been the place where movements uh, like Me Too and Black Lives Matter have been built. 
you know, where those movements did an end run around a traditional media that was largely dominated by like older white men who weren't that interested in Ferguson or in the Harvey Weinstein story or, or whatever. Is there a way that they can strike that balance? I don't know if it's a hard problem, but I would love to see them thinking more about their system design and how it can be changed to incorporate values other than just how shareable something is. We're going to have to leave it there. Will, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare podcast series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed and on our separate Arbiters of Truth podcast feed. And we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Materials supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare, where you'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. On April 8th at noon Eastern time, our weekly supporter-only live show will feature a Q&A session with Lawfare Senior Editor Roger Parloff about the prosecutions of January 6th Capitol riot defendants. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, and look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, titled The Aftermath. You can check out our written work at lawfareblog.com and buy Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. This podcast is produced by Jen Pacha Howell, and our audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, Thanks for listening.